Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to Romans, the 8th chapter, which I have been longing to preach to you. And now, by God's grace, have that opportunity this morning, this glorious golden text from God's Word, Romans chapter 8, beginning at the first verse. Hear God's Word. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the ordinance of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you, but if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies, the Spirit that dwelleth in you. So then, brethren... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye must die. But if by the Spirit ye put to death the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For ye received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to usward. For the earnest expectation of the creation waiteth for the revealing of God, for the creation was subject vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only so, but ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For in hope were we saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for that which he sees? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And in like manner the Spirit also helps our infirmity, for we know not how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searches the heart's knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because he makes intercession for the saints, according to the will of God. And we know that to them that love God, all things work together for good, 
even to them that are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also foreordained to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he foreordained, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather, that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or anguish, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? Even as it's written, For thy sake we are killed all sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Easter is always a high point of joy and rejoicing in the Christian world, something that's eminently happy and worth looking forward to, and that's because it expresses so very well the saving triumph of the gospel. Easter is always something that we can look forward to. But having recently passed through the valley of the shadow of death, and having been put through intense pain and severe distress, and having viewed all around me, literally, the life and death struggles of people who were hospitalized, I have especially come to look forward to this Easter, and I've done so with renewed and deepened awareness of its power and its blessed implications. I don't want to dwell upon the apologetical power and implications of Christ's resurrection, though they are real and they are considerable. I mean, the Christian faith stands out uniquely among all the religions of the world for its truth, for the fact that miracles take place in the greatest miracle of all, life from the dead. As Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is vain. Easter has important implications for the truth of our Christian doctrine. It has important apologetical application. It is the doctrinal anchor. It's the indispensable truth of the faith. However, I think these considerations focus upon the resurrection of Christ as an objective matter, which is exactly and factually what it is, regardless of a person's relation to that matter. Whether anybody believes the resurrection or not, or cares about it whatsoever, the resurrection is what it is. And of course, that's why it's so important apologetically. It's not important whether someone's persuaded Christ rose from the dead. He did rise, and that is the anchor of our faith. So there is that objective of our Easter celebration. But my interest this morning is more intensely personal than that. It's more subjective, or if you will, existential. My interest is in the historical resurrection of Christ as it bears directly upon us in a personal way. What it means for the actual human experience 
of life in the world. I want us to appreciate the incredible power and the joyous implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, not just in itself objectively, but what it means, what it means subjectively to us as believers. And so we, we raised the question at the outset this morning, just what difference does it make to us in our personal experience that Christ rose from the dead? And to answer that question, I've chosen as my text that favorite passage of so many believers, Romans, the eighth chapter. I've always to uh, take on this chapter as a text for preaching because, well, how could anyone be he ever so eloquent ever so doctrinally astute, how could anyone really do justice to this beautiful text? It's really the pinnacle of biblical revelation. Uh, Some have said it's the highest point in the literature of the Bible. William Tyndall, that early English reformer and Bible translator, said about Romans 8 that no man could read it too many times and no man could study it too deeply. The chapter is simply magnificent. And I'm not adequate to it, and I know that. We cannot expound, naturally, we cannot expound this chapter and its uh, complete content in detail this morning. But we do have time, I think, to see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key element in this chapter, is the key to the comforts and to the joys which Romans 8 reveals to the believer. We can briefly, this morning, scan the existential importance of Easter and these powerful two pages. So let's turn to this greatly loved chapter, Romans chapter 8, and have it tell us just what difference the resurrection of Jesus Christ makes to us in our personal experience. And there are four precious Easter truths that I think we should learn there. Four precious truths that come to us because he lives. First of all, Romans 8 teaches us that because he lives, we too live through his indwelling spirit. Because he lives, because of what took place on that first Easter morning, we have life through his indwelling spirit. To put it very simply, what Paul says early into this chapter is that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And that risen Savior has sent this same Spirit to dwell within us. Let's look at that. Romans 8, look at verse 11. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The Spirit of Him. Who is it that raised Jesus? It's the Father. The Father raised His Son. And how did He do it? Through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead. We are told in verse 9 of this chapter that this is Christ's Spirit, that it indwells in us because of His work. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Now, let me just give you a little doctrinal aside something that we can appreciate as believers, though there are many in the world who wish to dispute it. Do you notice how the Bible teaches in just so subtle but strong a way the deity of Jesus Christ in this verse? Paul speaks of the Spirit of God, and in the very next breath says the Spirit of Christ. They are one and the same. 
Paul easily interchanges Christ in his theological thoughts. That's because Jesus is the very Son of God. He is God himself, very God of very God. And Jesus, who rose from the dead in the power of the Spirit, has given his Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, which is the Spirit of Christ. He has given that Spirit to live within us. You remember how Jesus in the upper room, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, there to pray, to be betrayed, and finally taken to his trial and crucified, how Jesus in that garden, before he went to the garden, said to his followers, I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. He abideth with you, and shall be in you. Because I live, ye shall live also. I don't think the apostles could have in any way really appreciated in that evening discussion what Jesus was getting at. If you read John's Gospel, often John inserts these little parenthetical phrases saying, for instance, about that water of life welling up within us. Oh, and this he sp- about this he meant the Holy Spirit. But of course, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they understood these things. But Jesus in the upper room said, Because I live, you shall live, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. He will abide with you and will dwell in you. John 15, 26, Jesus continues, When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, he shall bear witness of me. And so Jesus here tells them what they can expect. He will live despite the appearance of death, despite the appearance of defeat. He will be victorious and shall live in the power of the Spirit. And that Spirit, he says, I will send to you, and he will dwell in you. The Bible teaches us, you see, that the Holy Spirit was the agent used by the Father in raising His Son. We see that in Romans 1, verse 4. Paul says, "...who was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness." Who is the Spirit of holiness? It's the Holy Spirit, obviously. "...who is declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead." Or in 1 Peter 3.18, the Apostle Peter says, Being put to death in the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. And so you see how crucial the work of the Spirit is to our Easter celebration? The Holy Spirit was the instrumental power of God in raising Jesus from the dead. And what now this means to us is that we have to appreciate that this Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, this very same Almighty Spirit of God lives in us, dwells in us. And Jesus, the Son of God, the risen Savior, is the one who has sent Him to us. First John 3.24, John says, And hereby know that He abides in us by the Spirit which He gave us. Jesus has given us His Spirit, the Spirit that raised Him from the dead. Or as Paul says in Galatians 4, 6, Because you are sons, God sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, and the risen Savior has given that resurrection Spirit to us, to live in us. And so it shouldn't surprise you, coming back to Romans 8, that when Paul speaks of the Spirit, he calls Him the Spirit of life. 
the spirit of life. Look at Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus made me free. And he could have said Holy Spirit. He could have said Spirit of God. But you see, it's significant to him. He wants the connotation, he wants the content of that resurrection power to be communicated. He says he's the spirit of life. Or Romans 8, 6. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life. Peace. He's a living spirit, a spirit that gives life, indeed life from the very dead. In 2 Corinthians 3.6, Paul says, The letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Jesus himself in John 6, verse 63 said, It is the spirit that gives life, the flesh profits nothing. And so from beginning to end, the New Testament message makes clear that the spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is a spirit, a life-giving spirit. A spirit of life. And so Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 9 and 10, because that spirit, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of life dwells in us, then right now our spirits live. Or to put it in a, in a way that I think is probably closer to the English colloquialism, we are spiritually alive. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, the spirit of resurrection power, we are alive from the dead spiritually. Romans 8, verses 9 and 10. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if any man hath not the Spirit of Christ, he is none. And if Christ is in you, there's another fascinating thing about Paul's theology. If the Spirit is in you, Paul says, and the next breath he says, if Christ is in you, because Christ dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. But let's continue. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit, now referring to our spirit, the spirit is life because of righteousness. You see, if Christ dwells in you by his spirit, that same spirit that raised him from the dead, then you are spiritually alive. Do you appreciate that fact? When you look at the world around you, the people that pass you by day by day, those that you encounter, do you appreciate the fact that there's a, a huge difference, a chasm that separates the human race between those who are the walking dead and those who are spiritually alive? You know, there, there's just, I don't want to make it just a physical approximation, but there's about just the look in the eye of someone who doesn't know what life is all about, doesn't know God, doesn't have the assurance of salvation, know where life is going, what the future is all about. Someone who doesn't have the hope of heaven, the satisfaction of being adopted into the family of God, they just don't understand. They just don't appreciate. They just don't have the joy that's available to us. They're dead. But you see, if we have the spirit of Jesus Christ, that spirit that raised him from the dead in us, our spirits cannot be dead. Because he's the spirit of life, and he gives life to us. And right now, even though we know that our bodies shall die because of sin, even as God told Adam and Eve, even though we know we will go through the painful experience of the separation of soul and body, we know that even now, in the midst of our sinful bodies, we live. Life is ours. God has begun a process within us that will bespeak resurrection in the future because we enjoy resurrection power now. And so the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of life, indwells us, and for that reason, our spirits right now live. 
but even more to go on to the verse 11 following. The indwelling spirit shall in the future give life even to our mortal bodies, even to those bodies that we know now shall die. They too will live. As Jesus lives, so we will live too. And so Paul says, But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead shall give life also to your mortal bodies. You need to underline that word also. The Christian faith is not simply about spiritual life now in the hidden recesses of the internal heart, but it's going to be an objective vindication that the believer has when in the future his body or her body rises from the grave, when the resurrection power of the Spirit experienced by Jesus becomes our experience, not just internally but externally, not just spiritually but bodily. This same Spirit that raised up Jesus shall give to your mortal bodies life. What the Father has done for the Son, He shall likewise do for His sons, plural. He will raise their bodies from the dead, and that by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Let me remind you of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, how Paul says there, but now has Christ been raised from the dead, the first fruits of them that are asleep. That model of first fruits is crucial to Paul's resurrection theology. What Paul means by that, those of you who are not from farming communities or have not read the Old Testament and understood this concept, is that God gives the first fruits of the harvest, which is the token that he will bless the remaining of the harvest. The first fruits are given back as a gift to God because we have faith that we can give the very best, the very first of our crop back, because He will continue the harvest. And Paul says, Jesus rose as the first fruits. He's only the first one who's going to rise. There's going to be a historical gap, what we now, you know, where Jesus is returning. But when Jesus returns, the rest of the harvest of resurrection will be given. He rose as the first fruits, because He rose, you shall rise. And then he goes on, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That does not mean, all cultic groups aside, that it is raised a ghostly body. What it means is it is raised a body infused with the Spirit of God. The Spirit that raised Jesus will raise our bodies too. So also it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam became life-giving spirit. And so do you understand, this is the first point here in Romans 8, how significant it is that Jesus rose from the dead, not just for the truth of the Christian faith, but for your comfort and for your life, because Jesus lives, you live also the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul doesn't stop there. He secondly says, because he lives, that all fear is gone. Look at Romans 8, verse 15, and continue through. For you received not the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but ye received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified with him. 
And so what has this spirit brought to us? It's brought us spiritual life now. Those who are spiritually dead can't appreciate that, but we know what it is to read the things of the Spirit and the Scripture. We are enlightened. We believe those things. We have new life within us. We are saved people. And beyond that, our bodies will be saved in the future. Our bodies will rise to life again because the Spirit dwells in us. And if that is true, then Paul says, you haven't received the spirit of bondage to fear. What could you fear under these circumstances? Of course not. What is this spirit but the spirit of adoption? What difference? Compare in your own minds, very literally, the difference between being in bondage, being in prison with no hope of escape, and the concept of being brought into a family relationship of love and protection and care. What kind of spirit has God given you if God has given you the Holy Spirit of life that raised Jesus from the dead? Then he's given you the spirit of adoption. That you've been brought right into the family of God. And if you've been brought into the family of God, the amazing thing is, Paul says, you're an heir. God doesn't have any disowned children. God doesn't leave any children out of his will and provision. Everything that he has has been bequeathed to his children, and we are those children. Now, you might tend to think, wait a minute, the only one who really deserves blessing, the only one who really deserves an inheritance from God is Jesus Christ, His holy, beloved, and unique Son. And you know what? That's true. The Bible says that's true. Only Jesus warrants the inheritance from God. But because Jesus is our brother, because we've been adopted into His family, we've been made joint heirs with Him. We're not heirs in ourselves, to be sure. We don't naturally have anything coming to us. But supernaturally and by the grace of God, we belong to Christ. And if Christ receives the blessing of the Father, we receive the blessing of the Father. Because Christ lives, we live. And because He lives as the Son of God, we shall live as children of God and be heirs of the Father. And Paul makes this point dramatically by saying, even if we suffer with him, what shall we inherit? The same glory that he received. And so in this life, as you go through pain and trial and tribulation, as the stress comes upon you, do you remember this? That because Jesus lives, all your fear is gone. Nothing can happen to us, even through suffering and death. Our prospect is one of glory, of being risen from the dead, of enjoying with the very Son of God all things of the... I want you to think about that for a moment. How much of human life centers around fear and anxiety? We do a very good job of hiding that. Most of us do most of the time. Do a good job of hiding that. Because, you see, it's a sign of weakness to show people that we're not really sure, that we're fearful of what might happen. We hide that often, but um, I want to assure you that people don't hide it well when they're facing a life and death crisis. They don't hide it well when they're hospitalized facing heart surgery or trying to recover from a heart attack. During my stay in the hospital, I was in three different locations, the, the recovery room and then the intensive care room and then I was in the sick heart 
area of the hospital where people who are recovering from heart attacks or having a particularly bad time after their surgery go, and then finally out on the regular floor. And I encountered a large number of different kinds of situations, different kinds of people. And I would say that the strain, the, 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 the thread that ties all those experiences together is that those were all experiences of fear. Not just fear of the unknown. I'm afraid that there's so often fear of the very well-known. That death lies beyond and then the facing of a holy God. People do strange things and say strange things. A lot of the mass comes off in those situations, you can be very sure. But Paul tells me that because Jesus lives, for me, all fear is gone. Because I've been adopted into God's family. I'm a joint heir with Christ, and that means even through suffering, glory will be my prospect. The greatest fear comes from the prospect of facing God's justice. With the guilt that accompanies that, and the thought of inheriting damnation. But what Paul says here, because Jesus lives, what shall you inherit? Not damnation, glory. Not alienation, adoption. Not curse, but blessing. And thirdly, because Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow, Paul says, knowing that he holds the future. Romans 8, verses 18 through 23. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to usward. For the earnest expectation of the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to vanity, not of its own will, but by reason of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the liberty of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only so, but we ourselves also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for our adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. Paul says, though we have no fear in us, we have the spirit of adoption in us, we do groan and travail, even our bodies. Indeed, the whole creation harmonizes with our groanings. The whole is metaphorically looking forward to and longing for that day when our adoption will be complete, when we will have been fully inducted into the family of God. And that adoption will be complete, says Paul, with the redemption of our bodies. Not just the redemption of our souls, not just spiritual life, that we know we will be saved and go to heaven to be with God, but on the day of resurrection, when God vindicates us in body and soul, when God brings life to our mortal bodies, then the adoption will be complete, and all of creation will be renewed, and all of those things that made the created order suffer, and all of those things that brought it under distress and trial and pain will be removed. John describes for us beautifully in Revelation chapters 21 and 22 the new creation of God that is coming. A creation where there will be no tears. A creation where there will be no pain. Where there will be no suffering. And praise God, above all, no death. Yet a new creation that we're looking forward to. And all of the old creation, the whole created order is groaning for that day when God will finally give life to our bodies. You see then, the future that we have before us is incomparable in glory. 
And the whole created order is going to be released from corruption on that day when our bodies are redeemed. And again, I just want to remind you that um, having gone through a period of bodily pain, uh, and not just my own, but seeing that of others and, and hearing of so many things that were being done just at this one hospital to try to help people in so many different kinds of diseased or broken situations for their bodies, that it's just amazing to me that people can carry on in the face of that kind of distress, that kind of pain that they had, a particular a story that just broke my heart was of a, of a young woman who was on the floor where I was, although not I'm uh, about five or six months previously, and who had to be hospitalized for over six months because they couldn't make her heart work properly. And everything that was done just showed that she had nothing but death to face. And, you know, it just, uh, it's something the nurses on that floor could not forget that five days before this young lady died, her boyfriend came in and they had a little wedding service there in the hospital room. She got married to this, uh, this boy that she had loved. Five days later, she was dead. Now, what gives you hope in the face of that kind of tragedy? What makes you face the future if you're not a Christian? It's just this, that in knowing that the day is coming when all of our bodily distress all of the pains we go through and even the death of our body will be erased because in that day all of creation will be renewed and we will live ever to live and never again. And so Paul presses on. It's in that context, you see, that Paul says in Romans eight twenty eight, we know that to them that love God all things work together for good. If you know that even through the distress of sickness and death, God will raise your body to glory, then you know all things work together for good. Just consider the, the crucifixion of the Savior. What greater outward sign, appearance of defeat could there be? Here was the one holy one of God, the one who had committed no sin, who had healed the bodies of people and given men hope, who had proclaimed the good news of God's kingdom, who came to live among men as God with us, and yet the human race crucifies him. And all of his followers turn their back on him and betray him, though to a man they all swore they never would. And there he is, the one holy one of God, through all of history, dying on the cross alone. Certainly Satan rejoiced in that day. How can we say all things work together for good? Well, you know the rest of the story. You know that that was God's wise, amazing plan for bringing life to you, giving you the salvation which could never be yours without the Savior dying in your place. And of course, he did not abandon his son to the cross, but rather raised, from him, raised him from the dead in glorious power. And so we know that all things work together for good if you're called according to God's purpose. And what does the future hold? Paul says, those whom he foreknew, he foreordained to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn, first fruits, it's all the same, you know, concept for Paul. The idea here is Jesus rose from the dead and his future is your future.
And so he goes right on to say, Whom he foreordained, he called. Whom he called, he just, whom he justified. God's going to glorify. You know that all things work together for good because he lives. And so how do you bear your present trials and tribulations in tremendous hope as a Christian? Hope in the complete renewal of creation. Hope in the perfect plan of God that all things work together for good. Hope in future triumph. But of course, none of that would be possible if Jesus didn't rise from the grave. And so what difference does it make that we celebrate Easter this morning? Because He lives, we live also. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because He lives, we can face tomorrow knowing who holds the future. And finally, because He lives, our life is worth living. Because He lives, it's worth going on. Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. What shall we say to these things? Paul finally gets to the place where he can no longer restrain himself writing an objective essay of theology. He says, what are you going to do about it? What do you make of this? How do you respond? What shall we say? If God is for us, who is against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ Jesus that died, yea, rather that was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Because God didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up in our place upon the cross. And because this Son was raised from the dead, ever living now to make intercession for us at the right hand of God, Paul draws three applications. First, he says, no antagonist can accuse us. Can you imagine what that's like? In this life, you know, whether it's the, the highway patrolman that you worry about accusing you, or your next-door neighbor, or some family member who knows some ugly secret about your life, whatever it may be, we never face that before the face of God, because no antagonists us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Say what you will about me. Know all the dirt in the world about me. You will not be able to say that before God, because you see, before God, at His right hand, stands one who intercedes for me, who says, I paid the price. You cannot accuse my loved one anymore. No antagonist can accuse us and no power can defeat us. If God is for us, who can be against us? I mean, what can you fear? What should you fear when the Almighty Creator, the Redeemer of His elect, stands with you and by you and helps you through every situation according to His perfect plan? Nothing can defeat us. And finally, nothing needed for true happiness can be denied us. Notice I said, for true happiness. We sometimes have really mistaken ideas of what would make us happy or what would keep us happy. But God knows very well what we need, and nothing will be denied you. Here's a challenge to you as a believer. What is it you think that you genuinely need for your spiritual success and happiness that God will keep from you? Can you think of anything? I know you can't, because Paul says that he will not deny us anything. If God didn't spare his own son, how will he not with him freely, not by compulsion, not by our begging, but freely give us all things? And then finally, that beautiful crowning conclusion to Romans 8, because he lives, we know God loves us. Imagine that, us. And he doesn't love us in our cleaned up condition 
and He doesn't love us because we've bartered some good for the salvation He gives. He doesn't love us because we've somehow qualified for the team. But He loves us in our sin, where we are, who we are. Because He loves us in that condition, then what's going to separate us after He has saved us? What's going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? All the intense sacrifice of Christ's cross and with the almighty power of Christ's resurrection, Paul says, and nothing after that, no matter how bleak, no matter how painful, can separate us from the love of God. Indeed, no matter what befalls us in life, no matter how painful, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. And that makes life worth living. Day by day, moment by moment, no matter what I face, no matter what discouragement, whatever bodily pain, whatever threat it may be, we are more than conquerors. So do you have a loved one who is sick today? Have you gone through a difficult time in your own physical situation? You are more than conquerors. Do you face the prospect of being out of work? Are you looking for a job? Does that sort of thing worry you? Do you have difficulties with your relatives? Do you have problems within your own family you can't get resolved? Paul says it doesn't make any difference. Because you see, nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. And he's going to see through that. Nothing can take that away. Paul puts it this way, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth... And finally, Paul runs out of things to say, and he says, or any other creature, it makes no difference where you look in creation, nothing can frighten me. Nothing can worry me. Because nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In that context, life can never be meaningless, never pointless, never too painful to bear. Because in that context, to live is always to live in triumph. And so you see, friends, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not simply the crux of the objective truth of the Christian faith. It is likewise the indispensable basis for the subjective and saving blessing of the Christian faith. Everything we have and everything we enjoy as believers comes about precisely because of what we celebrate this morning, because He lives. Because I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you such praise this morning that you and your wisdom have so designed a plan of salvation that even in the face of defeat and death, you bring victory and life from the grave. Our Father, we give you such praise this morning that you in your almighty power have defeated Satan and sin and the powers even of the curse of sin, death, not only in the life of your Son, but in our lives as well. Our Father, we give you such praise this morning. The person of Jesus Christ in this Easter morning is not simply an objective truth that stands out there, bare and naked, as a fact of history, but it is a very, very important, telling and intense, internal, personal truth as well. 
that because Jesus lives, we live, and we praise you for that. And because Jesus lives, all of our fears have been taken away, and we praise you for that. And because Jesus lives, we do face tomorrow, knowing that life is worth living, because we follow a living Savior, because we know a God who brings life from the dead, because we know that there is nothing at all that can ever crush us or oppose us or separate us from your love. How we thank you for the resurrection of your Son. How we thank you for the joy of this Easter season. We pray in the name of Jesus, our living Savior. Amen.